This forum is part of City Club's Education Innovation Series, sponsored by Nordson Corporation and PNC Bank, with additional support from the Shar and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation. We're grateful for their generous support. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Jenny Hamill, education reporter and producer for IdeaStream. It is March 30th and you are with a virtual City Club forum. As Ohio begins to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, Governor Mike DeWine has given all Ohio public school districts a deadline of April 1st to formulate and submit a plan to address the educational losses students sustained during the past year. Now, many school districts, particularly the big urban districts, were 100% remote since last spring when the governor first shut schools down due to the risk of COVID-19. That means children have been learning remotely for about a year. Now, while there is discussion and even controversy amongst educators and experts about the extent of learning loss experienced by each individual student, there is data that points to concerning trends when it comes to how much the pandemic impacted students and how much they've learned. For example, third grade English language art scores in Ohio were considerably lower this past fall than they were in 2019, equating to about one third of a year's worth of lost learning for the average Ohio third grader. And the decline was more pronounced among economically disadvantaged children. While these plans are being constructed, Congress has passed the American Rescue Plan Act, which includes about $125 billion in new and very flexible funds for school districts, which they will be able to spend to address the pandemic and its effects on student learning. It is the largest ever one-time federal investment in K through 12 education. So today we've assembled a great group of educators and experts to talk about learning loss. How big an issue is it? How do we measure it? And how do we help get kids to the place they deserve to be after a really grueling and intense time that is still ongoing? So we're going to talk about this, the challenges and the opportunities facing public school districts moving forward. As with every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. You can text them to 330-541-5794. That again is 330-541-5794. You can tweet them at the City Club. We'll try to work those questions in. Now for today's speakers and guests. Joining us today, Donald Jolly, the second superintendent for Warrensville Heights City School District. He became superintendent, excuse me. He became superintendent in 2015 after serving as academic superintendent in the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. Welcome, Donald. Welcome. Thank you for having me. We also have Sherry Obrensky, president of the Cleveland Teachers Union. She was elected president in April 2020, just in time for the pandemic after serving as an American history and government teacher at the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. Welcome, Sherry. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we also have Dr. Bob Slavin, professor and director of the Center for Research and Reform in Education at Johns Hopkins School of Education. He is also the co-founder of Success for All Foundation, an organization dedicated to the development, evaluation, and dissemination of research-proven reform models for pre-K through grade 12, especially those serving many children considered at risk. So I'd like to begin locally. I'd like to go to Superintendent Jolly. Donald, um, you and I have spoken throughout the 
school year and recently about your concerns when it comes to not all, but a great majority of your students and what you feel the pandemic has been, what the impact has been on your students while they have almost been 100% remote for almost a year. So why don't you iterate what your concerns have been um, and what you found? Yeah, so um, our concerns have centered around our most youngest students. Uh, we've looked at our data uh, and just give a background on our district. Our district was a failing district. Um, and the, the fight for us to get our kids on grade level has been one since I've been here. And what we've seen with the pandemic um, has almost erased a lot of our gains. Um, at this time, we see that our kindergartners are like 10% of our kindergartners are not at grade level. We see 19% of our first graders are not at grade level. Our third graders, which last year we took the test in January, we have 45% of our third grade graders passed the test during mid-year. And currently we only have 24% that is on track to to, grad, um, to pass the third grade uh, test. So what we've seen, um, and we did sporadically in school, we started, um, we bought back our, our kindergarten and first graders in September. And then due to um, various cases and, and things we had to shut down, but we came back in January. Um, January 25th is, was our day of coming back. And right now we're about 50% um, in person, 50% virtual. But what our teachers and our, our my teachers are the, the most valuable resource, um, what they've shared is that they see significant losses in our students. They're saying on our timing, like where we normally have development um, in March, that we're about October, November. Um, they see, especially with our first and our first graders who were kindergartners last year, just basic writing is um, we're, 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 this, we're suffering. Um, we see, um, you know, just letter recognition. A, a lot of the basic things that being in person um, helps or contributes to success, um, there are some large gaps. Um, we also have students who, who are doing exceptionally well, but for the majority, um, the loss of learning during the pandemic. And I, and I can say our teachers did a great job of doing online instruction, um, trying to di differentiate online. Um, but the partnerships between parents and, and some kids were at daycare centers and some people were grandparents. Um, you know, uh, the, some of the home situations did not um, promote the um, academic focus that was necessary to keep our kids on track. And even looking at Fs and, and failures in our middle school, we got failures up 26%. Um, a lot of it is contributed to the hand-to-hand -hand things that our teachers do face-to-face -face that with the pandemic, they weren't able to do. So I'm very concerned. I'm just looking at our data, looking at the, the current status of where our students are. And I'm concerned about the future. Um, and just being here in our district, uh, we had a fight with House Bill 70. We, we are the first district to go from an F to a C. Um, all those gains that we achieved going backwards um, due to the pandemic and things we couldn't, we, we, we had no control over. So um, with that, the data that we've, we have um, has indicated that we have suffered significant loss within our district and we're very concerned about it. And um, how about your upperclassmen? Um, you know, I have heard anecdotally from some of the bigger urban districts, uh, from superintendents and, and other, other staffers that, you know, literally juniors and seniors taking on full-time jobs 
in districts that were fully remote. Um, What was the situation for you? So we had the same situation um, with our seniors. We just did a count of our seniors and a lot of our seniors did take on full-time jobs. Um, School became secondary um, because they had the time um, due to the virtual um, learning situation. So we required those seniors that was in trouble to come back to school. They had to come back to school in order to graduate because in those cases, the in-person, the, the, the teacher, who is the biggest asset in this whole thing, um, being with the student is the, has been the most beneficial. And we've seen that since they came back, they've done much better because the distractions at home are not there when you're in school with teachers who care about you and, and care about your well-being. And I guess one of the things that you had told me that I thought was particularly striking, kind of visualizing maybe what 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 a, a younger child, a young scholar, as you call them, has or has not learned was um, the fact that at this point, some of those young kids would be able to write their name. But but because you said they haven't had practice at home, that just writing letters is not something that um, they're that, you know, they have a grasp of yet. Yeah, in particular, we saw that in our first grade and kindergartners. I mean, just, you know, if we go to school every day, you write your name 10 times a day. Now, when we transfer a student to our computer, they're not writing their name unless, you know, a parent is making you write your name every day. Uh, just basic things like that. Just write your name. You write it 100 times a week if you're in school and now you're on the computer, you're typing it. So just basic things like that is what our teachers and we've discovered that those are things that developmentally have them six months behind um, in our small district. And I, I do have to reiterate, our district is very small, only five schools. And we're able to see um, a lot of things quick because it's right here on top of us. So we see it and then we, we have the ability with us being real small to act immediately. So Sherry, I turn to you, you're from a really large district and um, you know, I, I know it's a little bit harder to kind of amass all the information to indicate exactly where all the students are. I'd love to know, I, I kind of, you know, we've, we've talked many times before, but what is your assessment of learning loss when it comes to Cleveland Metropolitan Schools? Um, how big an issue is it in your eyes? Is it still yet to be learned? Um, your thoughts? Well, I think first, we are going to have to take some time to um, figure out exactly where the kids are. We need to do some diagnostic work with our students now that we're getting them back in person to see um, what what they uh, have succeeded at while we have been remote and where they're struggling and um, then put that together to uh, help them come along in those areas of struggle. I think one of the things, while I'm extremely concerned about students and their welfare and what they um, are struggling with at this point, I, I, and we've had this conversation, I very much struggle with the term learning loss because our students haven't stopped learning during the pandemic. They may not have been learning all of the um, academic things that we normally spend time on. But I know in Cleveland, one of the things that our students have learned that they wouldn't have learned otherwise is how to navigate uh, electronically uh, using the internet, using platforms and um, learning platforms, video conferencing platforms, all of those other things. We didn't have that prior to the pandemic. And so our students have 
learn things that they might never have learned before uh, prior, prior to the pandemic or without the pandemic. And then there's some other things that if we hadn't been in remote learning, uh, students might be a little further ahead. So it's going to take us some time to put all of those things together to balance those. And, you know, we, we've been in a remote situation for a year. We're not going to come out of this immediately. It's going to take some time. We're going to have to think about uh, doing some meaningful work uh, this summer and probably next summer and the summer after that, uh, as well as thinking about how we structure our days uh, during the normal school year to uh, help our students recover not only um, the academically some of the things that they may not have uh, experienced the level of things that we would see during the pandemic, but also quite frankly, with their social emotional learning and how we uh, address the trauma that the students have uh, experienced during this remote period and also how the, the rest of uh, our school community has also experienced that trauma. So it's going to take some time for recovery. And my sense is that you really want as part of the conversation in some respect, a maybe not a celebration, but a recognition of, as you said, the great strides these children have made in surviving what has been a very difficult and traumatic time. I mean, we've all been under attack kind of emotionally. Am I going to get the virus or not? Family members, especially in black and brown districts, dealing with family members getting very ill or, or, or even dying. Um, so I, I, I get the sense that you really want that kind of perspective interjected in almost every conversation that has to do with learning loss. Absolutely. I think it is, it's extremely important that we have a level of positive framing. When we start talking about learning loss and we start talking about what students haven't gained, students hear that. They feel as though they're somehow deficient in um, that they have done something wrong or that they're not good enough. And I think that we really need to reframe the conversation so that we, we celebrate the fact that we're, we're starting to come out on what I hope is the other side of the pandemic and uh, that we've made it this far. There's lots of great things that we've done during the remote period. And now there, uh, there's new, uh, new work that we have to do in order to move everyone forward. And I think that there's a way to do that that recognizes that we certainly have some areas of struggle but we also need to spend uh, just a few moments celebrating um, what students have been able to accomplish in this time. Donald, I feel like you have a you have a response. What's that? Donald, did you have something you wanted yeah, to say? Um, with, with all due respect, I do um, respect what Ms. Obinsky is saying. Um, and looking at, and, 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 and I agree, the kids have learned a lot, but in two and three weeks, the state is going to test our students. In three weeks, they're going to test our students and use the data um, later um, for other purposes, um, in particularly um, school um, school choice. So while we do celebrate the the, the learning growth, I, I, from from my perspective and from the Warrensville perspective, we got to get to action immediately because. The time doesn't stop for these children. The kids that are in outer ring suburbs have been in school the whole time. And the expectation is that at a certain grade level, they are supposed to learn, know certain information. 
and next year, the year after that, they're going to hold these kids accountable to what they should know and not know. And the pandemic, and just in my opinion, this time is going to be lost or not lost, but it's not going to be viewed on as a as a safe harbor for districts like mine who have um, fought school takeover, um, whose students um, have who need to achieve on who need to achieve and be ready to go into the real world and be successful. So with that, we um, do celebrate the successes of our teachers. They grew during this break. Our students grew, but also on the ground, the expectation of the state and, and, and stakeholders is that the kids know certain things at the end of the grade level. So we have to, from from my perspective, we have to celebrate and then we have to take immediate action because if we don't take action in two or three years from now, my fear is the kids are gonna be the people that get the blame, not the pandemic or the situation that caused the pandemic. So Bob, I, I now turn to you. I mean, obviously, we're all in in the same boat, wanting the best for these students, wanting them to learn as much as they can. I mean, and, and, and I know that Sherry Donald are so committed to these children, but there is kind of this tension about, you know, uh, about how we approach this, how we how how we have a dialogue about it. Um, what have you seen when it comes to the data, the research of the national landscape? Um, when it comes to the realities of this learning loss and who it's impacting the most? I think there's no question that uh, that there are many children uh, who have been deeply affected in a negative way uh, from the COVID experience. Uh, yes, there are many children who are going to do fine. Um, I have a five-year-old uh, granddaughter, uh, you know, who in, who's uh, in kindergarten, uh, and she spent uh, up until very recently she was completely online, uh, but she had us as grandparents and she had her parents as parents and um, she had plenty of help and, and uh, it wasn't ideal, you know, to be learning only online from a teacher that she'd never met in a school that she'd never set foot in, uh, but she'll be fine. On the other hand, we work with many, many children uh, in Baltimore and many other places uh, for whom things have been ca catastrophic. They really, they've not had any involvement at all with the uh, remote uh, learning. Either they didn't have the technology, they didn't have the assistance, uh, they, they, they were in chaotic uh, circumstances. There may have been computers in their home, but other people had to use them as well. Um, and uh, it, it's just, there are a lot of kids who have, are likely to have lost out um, and are certain to have lost out. I mean, we're seeing this now as kids are coming back to school uh, and, um, and, and unfortunately, they tend to be the kids who were not doing that well before. Uh, so that it's often that what happened with COVID is, a, is compounding uh, problems that kids are likely to have had before. But I mean, I was looking at data, uh, you know, in 2019, before COVID was ever heard of, uh, there were nine and a half million fourth graders who were reading below the basic level on NAEP, on the National Assessment of Educational Progress. That's very low. That's very, you know, that's a major crisis, but it's the same. It's not a new crisis. It's been true for 20, you know, as long as there has been national assessment of educational progress, there have been many such children and they tend to be disproportionately disadvantaged. They, they tend to be uh, uh, from, from poor families who are in high poverty districts that are not able to do what really is necessary to, uh, to get to them. 
So this is certainly a catastrophe for many, many children, not for all of them, but many children, and uh, has to be treated that way. I think that uh, Sherry's point is exactly right. There has to be um, diagnostic testing to, you know, to, to help kids get back on track to be sure that, that you understand what they can do and what they can't do. Uh, and then, but also that it is really important uh, to then start using uh, proven strategies that will accelerate kids, that will take them where they are, uh, wherever it may be, and move them forward as quickly as possible, particularly the kids who are furthest behind. Uh, what we don't want to have is a situation in which kids come back to school, they're far behind, they may have been behind even before COVID, and now they're worse, and they spend a year waiting for intervention and uh, in, in feeling... I can't do school. I hate school. Like, you know, this is awful that, you know, that, that kids don't want to fail. And a lot of them are going to experience a, a level of failure and, and of, of uh, difficulty that we have to be able to respond to with the best uh, interventions that we have. And Bob, how I originally found you was, you know, we, we were, we were um, doing some reporting at my station about the solutions when it comes to, to this disruption on academic progress this year. Um, and and is, is this, if, if there are a wide range of whether a student experienced learning loss or did not, and maybe even excelled in the complete remote environment or just did fine because they're independently driven, you know, broadband access at home, whatever you have it. Um, how do we create that kind of equity or that equal landscape for all these students so that we find out who's got the gaps and how quickly do we act on filling those gaps? Or does the you know educational field act on filling those gaps? Is it something that can be done slowly over years or does it need to be hit on this summer? <laughs> So I, I like to speak to that. Again, yeah. I have to talk on relative sense of we, us being small. So sure. we're being very small. We've already tested our kids already. So we know exactly where they are. So what we've done is work collaboratively with our union to look at our fourth quarter and make our fourth quarter basically just an intervention for a quarter. We're basically all the we're taking all our teachers, looking at their strengths, and then we're putting our students based on their skills with those teachers. And then the, the, the students will have opportunity to, I don't want to say test out, but earn their way out. Once they have mastered the skill, then they go to the next skill. So we had that rotating cycle for the fourth quarter. We also um, have an agreement with our union to do an extra 17 days at the end of the school year. So we, instead of ending the school year June 4th, we're going to end on June 30th. Again, to provide more intervention. Really giving each child an individualized um, education plan based upon their individual needs and then using our staff or using our staff matching strengths and weaknesses for our students it's easier for us because we're small it just we got one we got one elementary school now so but that one elementary school um we put all hands on decks tested all the kids that's what we've been doing since january and going into the fourth quarter our intervention uh, plans would start that's k-12 um, to try to fill the gaps because we identify what the gaps are now it's just filling in the cracks to make sure. And even this probably will go into the first quarter of next year because some of the virtual kids are not gonna come in. They're not gonna come back. And we hope that they come back in the spring, I mean, in the, in the fall so that we can catch them up too. 
But again, I, I just want to say I appreciate our union partners because um, they've been willing to cooperate and do the things, you know, they push and we push, and, but together, I think we all have the best interest of the students. So it's, it's worked well for us here in our small district. Jerry, I'll turn to you. I mean, has Eric Gordon, the CMSD CEO, um, have you had any sort of formal conversation about, you know, the plan is due April 1st. Um, I've been trying to find out what it is. Um, I think I have a sense, but, you know, um, Eric's very good about making sure families know before, before the press does, which is a, <laughs> a respectful strategy. Um, but have you had conversations about um, an organized approach to dealing with student learning loss or what it looks like at the district level? We've had, uh, we've had some conversation around that to this point, and um, we've talked about short-term, but again, we've also talked about long-term strategies. So we're talking about what it looks like over the next few weeks, what it looks like over the summer, uh, what the school year will look like next year, and really taking a um, both a, a short, medium, and long-term approach to how we are going to deal with the recovery because this is a recovery period. I mean, we, we have been through something very traumatic. And, and um, again, while I truly appreciate the emphasis on academics, it's also going to be critical as we bring our students back that we are focusing on trauma. We are focusing on social emotional learning, building relationships. In some respects, we may have to go a little bit slow in the beginning to go fast later on. Um, it, it's making sure that our kids are feeling comfortable about being back in school, that our staff is feeling comfortable about being back in school so that we can um, we, we can get to the, you know, get to the academics and the, and, and the weightier issues. If I don't feel safe and comfortable, it is going to, it's going to inhibit my learning as I move forward. So those are, those are some of the things that we're dealing with right now. And I also think, you know, to, to Bob's point earlier, um, it, it's not like school has been working really well for some of our kids for a long period of time. We have an opportunity to um, listen and to learn from what we have experienced over the last 12 months, examine those inequities that have been laid bare during this pandemic, and then learn from those things and build a system that works better for kids moving forward. And that's one of the things that we're really trying to think about in Cleveland to do some thoughtful work around um, making sure that we're addressing our students uh, and the challenges in the short term, but also how do we build this system long term to serve our students and their families better in a more holistic approach, paying attention to academics and, uh, you know, uh, reading, writing and arithmetic, which we focused really heavily on over the past, I mean, in the 22, almost 23 years I've been in Cleveland, we spent a lot of time on reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, and we still have a tendency to struggle with our scores. It's more than it's it's more than just that. There are lots of things that we have to take a look at, and um, building a building a system where our kids want to come to school and learn, our educators want to be there, our families uh, feel 
feel excited about the experiences for their kids. And, I, I, and that's what we are going to be looking at as we form a long-term strategy moving forward is to try to bring that joy and excitement back into learning and, and really taking some of the lessons um, from the pandemic to heart and, and making our system better. So Bob, you know, we're talking about a federal commitment of monies, um, a real national recognition that districts need help if they are going to um, help these students academically. And as you know, Sherry's pointing out super importantly, just making the student feel whole. And, 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 and you know, we've been in triage and, and, and now we're trying to come out of that. So I totally respect that. A, what are some of the things that we can do? You know, one thing about education, it's like to go from policy to the actual student and his or her well-being, you know, it, it can look like two different animals or just be discussed in different ways. So what are some of the things that you think the local school district can do to help these kids catch up? And do you have insight into dialogues? How do they talk to these children about, yeah, you have to go to school longer or this is what this year has looked like. I'm sorry it's been a struggle. Um, I mean, is there thought and effort being put into how we care for these children to emotionally having endured such a difficult time? Well, let me start with uh, the uh, strategies that schools can use uh, to confront the academic losses. Uh, I mean, there's no question that dealing with social emotional issues is paramount. I mean, that has to be taking place uh, as well. But it, we would not be doing a, a you know good service to our children if that's all we focused on. We also and, and Sherry's saying the same uh, that we all we we have to to uh, do something in academics that is not ordinary. That's not just what was going on before because there, there's a much bigger problem now. We did uh, some reviews of research and looked at all different kinds of things that people were proposing in the way of um, programs to try to make a big difference. Uh, for students who are struggling. Uh, we, we looked at tutoring, we looked at uh, summer school, after school programs, extended day, uh, technology programs. And the thing that was striking was that uh, tutoring is so much more effective than any of the other strategies that we began to focus uh, primarily on, on ways to provide one-to-one -one or one-to-small group tutoring to as many students as possible particularly students in elementary schools and in um, reading. Now, there, I mean, there are great tutoring programs for mathematics as well, and in secondary schools for mathematics. But uh, I think that the main emphasis needs to be on trying to make sure that every kid is well on, on the way to success in uh, reading from whatever baseline they're starting with. Uh, interject real quick. Okay. When you say tutoring, you, you mean one-to-one, one, one, you've told me this before, small group contact. Why is that so effective? Well, I think there are several things. One of them is that uh, when you're working one-to-one, uh, one-to-three, one-to-four, um, you, you can be very, very aware of exactly where each child is, how they're progressing on a day-to-day -day basis. You can personalize the instruction for the needs of that particular child to the level of the child, but also their learning styles and so on in a way that's very difficult to do with a class of 20 or 25 or 30. Uh, secondly, I think that in a tutoring situation, you can form a relationship between tutors and kids 
that's hard to do in a, in a whole class um, where you get to know the kid very well. You get to know how, you know, what, what turns them on and what, how they learn uniquely different from some other kid. So there are, there are a number of different tutoring strategies that, uh, in fact, what, one of the things that we've been doing lately, we, we brought together the 14 uh, tutoring strategies with the strongest evidence of effectiveness kind of into a coalition to make the case for proven tutoring strategies and to kind of uh, do joint outreach to districts and states, both to argue for the use of proven tutoring, but also to say, well, here, here's a, here's a set of programs, pick one, all of them are effective. You can't go wrong. You know, you might like this one or that one, or this one costs more or less, but, um, but I think it's really important to have tutoring, not the only thing you do, but to have tutoring as a, as a centerpiece of what you do to try to welcome kids back to school and be able to look them in the eye and say, this time you will succeed. We're going to be using strategies that we know for sure are going to work and, and personalize to your situation and you will succeed. I think you hear that with um, uh, Mr. Jolly talking about the, the you know, trying to do intensive remedi remediation or to intensive service for the kids coming back. I think that's exactly the right kind of attitude. The kids know what it means to be successful in school. You can't fool them. And the main thing it means, especially in elementary school, is it means that you can read. So for the kids to see themselves uh, making rapid progress because of use of effective tutoring programs is really important to enable uh, kids to feel uh, that, that uh, this time they are going to succeed in school. Whatever may have happened during COVID, this, the school is ready for them it's ready to make a really big difference in their lives. So I want to, can I speak to the social emotional? Because I, I do believe that's very important. And through this, this crisis, we found that family support is true. Um, so uh, one of the things we've done is made sure that they eat. Um, so we do a, a family, uh, during the COVID, we did a busing, make sure everybody ate every day. We bust, uh, had our buses for a mobile meals program. Uh, but we also partner with some community partners to make sure that families have support. So that they actually go to the homes and, and provide support to the families, counseling or whatever else that's necessary and needed. We also hire a position called culture coaches, which serves as the liaison between the staff, parents, and the students. And these individuals work with the students. When the students have outbursts and so forth, they go right to the student and they're able to hear the student and able to help a student. So the social emotional part is very important, and you have to invest in it. And I, even with um, school social workers and others, that to provide the support, because what we found is that a lot of families um, during the pandemic didn't have the basic resources that the district had to supply. Um, you know, people, ha the, the school was a safe haven for kids who were abused and so forth. Um, and those students are at home, so they didn't have any support. So as kids come back, we try to support them, but giving them connected to resources. Um, so with that, it, I, I agree with the, the panel. A kid has to want to be in school and feel supported in school and be and, and, and feel loved and cared about. And I think the most important thing is uh, relationships. Relationships with the teachers, relationships with the principals has been the most important thing I've seen. Uh, the, the teachers' relationships with the students um, for us has been the most beneficial thing to help our students transition back to school. When our teachers wanted them there, um, the kids wanted to be there. And with that, we've seen um, 
some progress. We're not where we need to be, but we've seen some progress with that. All right, it's 1235 uh, East Coast time. Um, so we have passed the, the halfway mark um, of our forum. So reminding our audience, those of you um, enjoying and watching this uh, really engaging conversation, if you have any questions for our speakers and guests, text them to 330-541-5794. That again is 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club and we will try to work them in. We're already getting questions. Um, I'm going to turn one of them to Sherry, but I have a question of my own for Sherry. You know, I think this is a time as well. I cover a lot of uh, Cleveland Metropolitan School District ongoing issues. And, and, and I know that during the pandemic, I've had conversations with teachers that are in your membership. And literally, I mean, maybe not literally, but they're doing cartwheels. I mean, I've got to say teachers all over Northeast Ohio that I've talked to have been exceptional. Uh, you know, I mean, there's varying degrees of how concerned people are about their own health and whether they wanted to go into a brick and mortar. You know, that's on everyone's independent um, decision making. But the effort that has been put in to make through the computer learning or hybrid learning and, and, and helping these kids has just been um yeah, it's it's been uh, awe inspiring. It's been it's been great. So I would like to know. I mean, what do you think the teachers need going forward um, in order to make sure that they are um, there for the student in a way that, like, if we needed some accelerated academic learning, we need some tutoring, all of this sort of stuff. I mean, what what do they need, kind of emotionally, to do the best job they can to make sure these students are at the level that they need to be, so that you know, the fourth grader in Ohio is exactly, you know, is where the fourth grader in California is, no matter what economic background they're from. Well, I think that, um, it, and to your point, uh, our the teachers throughout this pandemic have been truly incredible in thinking about what they had to do. You know, they went from um, not in, in our district, many didn't have much access to technology right. to now they are essentially, you know, writing, producing, filming their own content, uploading it, learning uh, these different platforms, um, learning management systems and different programs. And it has been a, an amazing effort on the part of our educators. And this has been a really challenging and stressful year all the way around. So um, making sure that we have some uh, social emotional care for our adults is extremely important. Um, uh, and, and having that uh, top of mind moving forward, it really is about taking care of the mental health of uh, all of the members of our school community. So that's important. And then also, making sure that we have uh, the types of supports, um, whether it is appropriate training, high quality training to help with uh, the, the different um, programs or different strategies that we will have moving forward, giving them time, time to plan, time to work together, uh, time to um, assess the students and figure out learning plans for the kids. Time is really important. And then also uh, still figuring out how we're going to have some downtime moving into the next year. We know that there will be summer programming for our kids as we move uh, through the summer. 
but figuring out you know who's doing what one and making sure that everyone has a little bit of downtime so that we can recharge our batteries coming into the next school year will be really important. Okay, audience question for Sherry. Do you think the pandemic has highlighted the importance of community learning centers, which try to build extra support for students and families centered on schools? Additionally, can the American Rescue Plan funds help jumpstart those kinds of efforts in Ohio? Um, I'd say yes and yes. I, I'm really excited that we were already on our way with our involvement in OEF, that we have almost half of our buildings are on board with the Say Yes initiative. We will be bringing another quarter of our district on board in this upcoming school year. Um, and within uh, the next two years, all of our schools will be fully involved in the Say Yes initiative, which will bring those community learning uh, supports and other supports into all of our schools. And also making sure that as we bring schools on board, those that don't have um, access because they're not fully part of the initiative yet, uh, have additional supports to make sure that um, we are uh, taking care of various needs within our school community, the partnerships that we form are incredible. It, it, and it is critical to have these recovery dollars as part of these efforts. This is what's going to fund additional uh, healthcare supports in our buildings, mental health supports, uh, additional uh, time, both during the summer, before and after school, all of those things, uh, those resources that we are getting through the recovery dollars, uh, all of those things will be funded through that money. So it's critical. Bob, will districts be able to rescue access the American Rescue Plan money soon enough to be able to access the tutoring effective summer learning and things like summer camps that include academic components? Does it all that take planning and of course government bureaucracy and will crucial time be lost in the next few months? So what do you know as, as far as an answer to that question? I think the money is going out very, very quickly mm -hmm. uh, and people can count on it, but, um, but at the same time, uh, people, I think that many school districts didn't do a great deal of planning until they were sure that this was all going to pass and, and um, you know, that it really, that the, that the feds would back them up. Uh, and so I think that there is a process of, of thinking through and planning that's necessary. I think this, that, that the interventions are going to be happening in three phases. One, there's going to be some things that uh, Mr. Jolly was talking about, um, you know, trying to use the last... Uh, the, the uh, last months of this school district, this school year, uh, to do the best possible with the kids as they're coming in. Uh, and that, even if the money were here, you know, people had to have been uh, planning that before the money arrived. Many people are talking about summer programs. Um, I think that if you do invest in summer programs, I would very strongly, you know, uh, encourage the inclusion of one-to-one of, uh, -one or small group tutoring as part of the summer experience. Lots of other things you can do during the summer as well. But the evidence for summer school that does not include tutoring is very, very bad. It's, it's um, does not, summer school in itself has no impact on student achievement. What does have an impact is that if you use the summertime for tutoring, uh, that can be very beneficial uh, as well. But I think that the real investment, the big, larger investments are going to take place for fall 2021. You know, the kids will all be back. Uh, 
where that may not be the case in uh, summer school. Uh, the key, the you know, so it'll be school the way school ordinarily is. Uh, everybody's expected to be there, uh, and uh, at that time, I think that uh, people will really start to to focus the new money on the use of tutoring on ways to improve uh, social emotional learning for children and for and uh, social emotional situation for teachers. Um, I think that, that that by then people will have had the time and need to take the time to really plan out uh, a comprehensive way of ensuring that kids will uh, will come to a school that is that is welcoming that's ready to to um, to make a big difference with them uh, so that they can see themselves as successful uh, as well as being seeing themselves as as welcome Donald an audience question and then I'm going to add a little Jenny question to the end of it. What are the challenges of reaching the students who need the most help with extra support in the coming months? And then what I'd like to add from that is as our superintendent, what what do you think parents can do to be aware of how their children are doing, how to kind of advocate for their child and say, I think my kid is still missing out on something. I mean, is there sort of a communication? One superintendent I did an interview with, and I'm forgetting who it was, but said the pandemic was more parent involvement than he had ever seen. I don't know if that's your situation, but again, how do you how do you reach out to the most at-risk kids in the next coming months? And and what do you need from parents in, in support of of, of 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 trying to help these students and knowing what they need? So I would agree the parental contact has been outstanding throughout this pandemic. But one of the biggest challenges is that some of the most needy students are very transient and they move frequently. So that's gonna be our challenge is, is students who are continuously moving and finding them and getting them in the right place um, and providing them the supports they need. With parents, I think what we've done is just appeal to them the need and the necessary, the necessary for remediation and, and acceleration too, because in this in this um, pandemic, some kids are doing exceptionally well. So as we market our um, extended school year, we, we're going to have accelerated programming too for our high school for all grade levels, and also we're going to have you know the remediation that's necessary, fitting the whole family or or all types of students to make sure that their learning styles are met. But the challenge will be getting the ones who need it the most, first contacting them and getting them in. And, I, and we've, we've had, we hired a truant officer and our principals are very actively, you know, doing home visits and doing the things necessary to try to get them in. But I will say that that's a challenge because when, especially during the pandemic, everyone who lived here didn't stay here. You know, the home situations caused grandparents to take on all groups of kids. So mm -hmm. kids might have lived here, but the grandparent lived in, shaker and all the grandkids with the shaker um so as kids come back home i think we'll be able to connect with families better but i, I would say that's a challenge but once we get them and we market to them the need for their child to get this extended help on both sides on both spectrums um i think all parents want what's best for their kids and you have to appeal to what's best for their child and those personal relationships, the teacher to parent contact, the principal to parent contact, superintendent to parent contact, all of us speaking the same language. I think we, we've proven that we've won over more than we've lost. 
Okay, I want to hit on a subject that I know Donald is very um, passionate about, um, and 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 I think it is important to the conversation, and that's just generally the idea of testing. Um, um, you know, Ohio legislators have decided to to continue with the mandated tests and say they won't be punitive. I know that you, Superintendent Jolly, have been concerned that even though that they say that, that maybe when it comes to the three years of um, data that you know determines whether um, you know a parent can use district monies for charter schools will impact ultimately the district. Um, so, you know, I'm curious to, to get all of your thoughts on the idea of mandated testing. You know, if we, if we are talking about learning loss, don't, doesn't there need to be some level of testing conducted? What does that look like? And, um, you know, you know, it, it, does there need to be a punitive quality? Does that need to be done away with completely? And how is that expressed to legislators who ultimately dictate those sorts of things? So, Sherry, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you mentioned t diagnostic testing, and I know that's what Warrensville Heights has carried out in order to find out in a very kind of immediate term how their kids are doing. But what what testing do you think should and should not be involved when it comes to the students in the pandemics this year? Well, I, I think it was disappointing that the U.S. Department of Education decided to continue with the the end of year testings, the the, the, the testing that's called for under the law. Um, I, I I don't find that I didn't find it as a classroom educator the end of course assessments valuable at all in terms of helping me determine uh, where students needed additional help and support. It's not diagnostic in any way. It, it really is more to use it as a stick with which to beat the districts with. Um, so I, I, I don't have much use for that. I do think that diagnostic testing is extremely important. I think that authentic performance-based assessment in this climate is extremely important. And I, I think that it's important for us to figure out where kids are and help determine where they need to go and um, actually spend some time, when, again, when we're talking about developing educators, spend time uh, helping to develop educators on more authentic performance-based assessment types so that we can really get down to what kids know, what they don't know, and what we need to do to help them move forward. And Dolly, I mean, sorry, Donald, same question to you. Uh, what, what do you think? are valuable and invaluable tests when it comes to uh, supporting the district and supporting the students? Well, I mean, I think the tests are valuable so that we can know where our kids stand in reference to kids throughout the state. So I think that information is very valuable. My concern is when it's used against school districts to take money away. Um, it, for those that know about Hospital 70, the school takeover law, um, that, you know, if your school gets, your district gets three or more consecutive Fs, then they, you know, the, the state can take your school over. And also tying um, the um, school choice to test scores. Our concern with this year is Senate Bill 89, in which, you know, they use this year's test scores um, as, a, as a part of the calculation to determine who, what schools get assigned or what districts are eligible for school choice. Well, that's a big concern because the whole state of Ohio has been under a pandemic, because, you know, it hasn't been equal access to in-person school districts um, and how are we going to use that data for a district like ours which almost seven hundred thousand dollars this year goes out for school choice that is a very um, significant amount of money 
Uh, and if that increases, it can cripple what we do here in our district. It can cripple how many teachers we have, how many, um, how much resources we can provide. So for this year and using test scores or, or the test scores not being used per se as a report card grade, but later being used um, is for me um, not fair uh, at all uh, because for our district, it will have consequences. So the urgency that I, I speak to is understanding the big picture that whatever test you take eventually it's going to count for something and you know we would like to use it as diagnostic things but we're 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 in survival mode because we already um been part of a attempted takeover so we have to maintain and ensure that our kids are doing well we have to also make sure that they're doing well socially emotionally and we got to continue to move forward because what we from my observations and from my time serving in this role that the rest of the state is going to continue. They're going to have certain expectations. They don't care about the pandemic or what happened. And basically, they'll say that we're making excuses and we, we, we can't make excuses for the lack of achievement. We got to try to figure out what's wrong, fix it, and provide our scholars what they need so that they can reach their potential. So my concerns with the testing is that they will be used later. It will affect us. So we have to make sure our kids are prepared and do their best, even though we know that it's not going to look good because of our, our internal um, data already. So what do we do to fix it next year and make sure our kids are home um, so that our district can survive? Because we are concerned about that. Yeah, I mean, you hear that, Bob, I mean, it, you know, in some respects, an existential crisis for, for for Donald. I mean, is that something you hear on the national level or, you know, I've read about and and, and kind of uh, done interviews where I'm, I'm, I'm hearing anecdotally about kind of a national pushback on, on a lot of the testing this year. Because, again, like what if it's ultimately punitive in nature, um, you know, in the inner workings of a bill or, or, or et cetera, et cetera? Um, what are your thoughts or, or what have you heard about um, the application of these standardized tests during a pandemic year or, or what to be what should be used in order to gauge students learning or, or lack of learning? I think that the conversation about um, about using st ordinary standardized tests uh, in this particular moment, this is insanity. This is this is genuine insanity. Uh, the test won't be valid. Um, they and an ordinary standardized test does not give you very much information. I think Sherry was pointing that out. Uh, you can you can use diagnostic tests that give you loads of information about what a child can actually do and what a child cannot do. Uh, they're designed for that purpose. But uh, ordinary state tests are not designed for that purpose. And so all you get is a score or set of scores. And um, uh, then I think that you have you know, real reason to think that those scores could be misused. So they're not, you're not getting uh, useful information. You're getting only information that schools, particularly high poverty schools, have good reason to fear will mm. be used in nefarious ways. Mm. All right. Seems like we're uniform in our thoughts on tests on this forum. Okay, let's use the last um, handful of minutes to talk about something that I think Sherry has touched on in the very beginning. And and is this pandemic also an opportunity for the education system? Bob, you refer to the fact that you know we had a quarter of century of of not great um, reading levels. You know when it comes to students in high poverty areas. 
Um, what does the pandemic provide when it comes to a change in the way we educate our kids for the better? Um, is there opportunities that you see coming out of this um, that can really transform um, the way K through 12 students in Ohio and nationally are educated? Uh, Sherry, I'll start with you. Uh, I think it absolutely is an opportunity. Uh, if we don't learn lessons from this pandemic, then shame on us. Um, we, we do have an incredible opportunity to embrace those things that we have seen have worked throughout this period, uh, embrace the new tools that we've been able to use and unload some of the bad practice that we've that has been embedded in um, in education for a long time. And because as educators, we have had to turn our job on its ear in such a short period of time, I, I think that there is a um, more of a willingness and openness to trying new and different things and seeing that, that we can survive it. It's okay. We can do things differently and move forward and roll with those punches. We've learned to be extremely flexible throughout the course of this year. Uh, I, I think that another piece that's really important, and we haven't talked about this yet, uh, although uh, Mr. Jolly has, has talked about this, is the idea that we have educators at the table, uh, the classroom educators, the boots on the ground involved in this process. But mm -hmm. another thing that I think is really critical is that we have to involve student voice in this process as we move forward. We need to talk to them about what they need. They need to feel invested in this process. And I think that in order for us to really make changes in education, we will have to involve students and their voices in this process to come up with a reimagining of the system that, uh, that they feel excited about and that they wanna be part of. And that really, I think is a huge missing component that we've had as we've talked about all kinds of, you know, school improvement and transformation over the, the time that I've been involved in education. I, I look forward to really embracing the, the, student, the student voice along with the boots on the ground teacher voice in this process. And Donald, what do you say to, to my question about the pandemic as kind of a flashpoint or an opening for a different a different manner in which, which we educate? And maybe as Sherry mentioned, and you were talking about, you know, really validating and, and, and inviting students to be an autonomous voice in the direction that this all goes. Yeah, I totally agree with um, Ms. Obrensky about just the opportunity to be flexible and creative. I think teachers have found new ways to reach students have found new ways student learn, students learn and have reached them at those all, all those various different levels. I think it's built capacity um, in everybody. I think in the principals, the administrators, the teachers, because people have had to attack problems that they never had to attack and make sure that kids are engaged on a daily basis. I think it's um, provided new opportunities. Whoever heard of virtual um, intervention? I mean, and using Zoom to do rooms to do intervention. You know, all of these new things have came from the pandemic that we are able to take from this point moving forward. So now we don't have to send a home tutor to a home. Now we can do it virtually. Um, we have so many new things that that's came from this that I, I just hope that we capture it 
and continue to use it to, for the betterment of our scholars and their learning. And, and, and really value our teachers because they have done a great job, as Sherry said, adapting on the run. One day we were in school, the next day we weren't. They went from having classes to being virtual to doing everything online. Um, that That is a testament to the you know the teaching profession and how flexible they are and 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 the great work they've done across the state uh ensuring the kids learn every day so i think there's a lot of lessons i do think student voice is important but at this point we need to tell the students what they need because sometimes they don't know and we got to provide them with the guidance and then hear them and then adapt once we got the guidance to get them in place and continue to provide them opportunities because again the world didn't stop with the pandemic there's college applications still going out there's still scholarships for sports and activities and all those things so we can't use the pandemic as something like the world stopped for a year because the world continued and we do not want our kids behind that's my big thing is that you know and just my observation being out here in Warrensville, all the districts around me was in school most of the time i do not want my third grader behind the third grader that went to Solon or Beachwood. So what do I do to make sure they catch up? And that's the urgency because at the end of the day, that's who they're going to compete with in the world. They're not going to compete with the kids in Warrensville. They're going to compete with the kids that were in school for a year. So what do we got to do to get them there? And that's our biggest thing. And using all of the lessons learned from the pandemic and putting that in our toolbox. So now our toolbox is even greater than it was before to make sure that we reach each and every child. So it's, it's been a learning experience. And one that I, I, I believe that we will use to better educate students um, throughout this, this nation, this country, and especially in my little, small, little dot on the map, Warrensville Heights. Thanks, Donald. And, and Bob, what are, what are the opportunities here? You know, you've got that 30,000 foot view and, and all these are, uh, federal funds pouring in. I mean, is, is there opportunity? I think there's huge opportunity. Uh, and I don't know whether our school system will take advantage of them. The worst thing that, that we have to confront in trying to, uh, to advance the achievement and school success of disadvantaged kids is complacency. You know, we do the same thing year after year after year. We get the same results year after year after year. And we come to believe that that's all we can get. That that's, that's all those kids can do. And that is so, so wrong. And uh, we have better methods. We have things like tutoring. We have, uh, you know, uh, new uses of technology. We have a number of, of, you know, proven strategies in different areas that are not widely used uh, because we couldn't, you know, people said, well, we can't afford them. Here we're going to have a chance to afford them. Here we're going to have a chance to to, uh, to use quite substantial additional money, but we, but the schools will have to make a choice to use those if they decide to basically you know go back the way things were and can continue to be complacent about the low achievement of so many kids that not their fault, not the fault of their teachers. It won't make any difference, and we'll be confirmed in our belief that uh, there's nothing to be done. And I think that would be a real tragedy if that were to take place. Okay. Well, I appreciate all of your perspectives. Um, this for me has been a, a great conversation. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on today's forum on the pandemic, learning loss and the challenges and opportunities facing public school districts moving forward. So during this hour, we've been talking to 
Donald Jolly II, Superintendent for Warrensville Heights City School District, Sherry Obrensky, President of the Cleveland Teachers Union, and Dr. Robert Slavin, Professor and Director of the Center for Research and Reform in Education at John Hopkins School of Education and co-founder of the Success for All Foundation. So to the three of you, thank you so much for joining me. Today's forum is the annual Nelson E. Weiss Memorial Forum. And attorney Mr. Weiss was a longtime member of the City Club and served as president in 1982. He had a keen interest in education, serving as a member of the Cleveland Heights University Heights Board of Education for many years. We're grateful to his friends and the law firm McDonald, Hopkins, Burke, and Haber LLP for honoring him with their endowment gift in support of City Club programming. Today's Forum is part of the City Club's Education Innovation Series, sponsored by the Norton Corporation Foundation and PNC, with additional support from the Char and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation. All City Club's virtual forums are presented for free every week, thanks to generous support from Bank of America, KeyBank, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC. You can join them in supporting C City Club's mission by making a contribution online or becoming a member at cityclub.org. I am Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for joining us today. Our forum is now adjourned. Thank you. <laughs>